Wow, wow. This is, this is overwhelming. Now, be honest, were you told to clap? You were, you were told to clap. That wasn't spontaneous. From now on, just clap spontaneously. But, uh, but, but not then. I am so, I, I got to tell you, I'm so overwhelmed uh, to be here in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and I'm so thrilled to all of you who came out uh, this evening. Uh, I know that uh, when something is free, people, people tend to show up, but I know that it's more than that, uh, that you are actually excited about being here, and I'm so excited you're here, I'm not kidding, this is... To my mind, this is an historic event, and I hope I can make that clear to you, or the evening as, as it unfolds, you will understand how important this is. Uh, this is not just another Socrates in the City event, uh, although those aren't so bad, but uh, this is particular, particularly special. Um, and before I tell you why, I want to tell you about Socrates in the City. Um, now, I'm always curious, has anyone here been... Uh, to a Socrates in the city before. Would you raise your hands? Okay, you guys need to leave. Uh, <laughs> seriously, it's not right. You're taking up seats that, that could go to other people. Come on, get out. No, come on. All right, all right, stay. But the, just this last time, that's it. Um, we, uh, we've never done... We've done them all over the place. Uh, we've done them in France. We've done them in England, in Oxford. We've done them, obviously, in New York. Uh, we've never done one in Pennsylvania, and we will never do one again in Pennsylvania, I tell you right now. No, that's not true. Lo- n- being mean is my love language. If I make fun of you publicly, that's the ultimate uh, thing. I, I want to say just a number of things quickly. Um, first of all, Socrates in the City started, this is like funny, in the year 2000. That's kind of like, sounds like in the future, in the year 2000. In the year 2000, we've been doing it all these years. Socrates famously said, the unexamined life is not worth living And then he blew his brains out in an alley. (laughs) Thank you for laughing. Thank you. Uh, Socrates said the unexamined life is not worth living. And I thought, you know what? New Yorkers in particular, because this started in New York, are not famous for thinking about what we call the big questions, right? Because you're at a cocktail party, and you do not want to bring up that thing or that thing or whatever it is. And I thought, there's something fundamentally sick about this. Like, you can't be in a free society and in a healthy culture, and be afraid to talk about certain things. Now, there are certain things you ought not to talk about, but to talk about the nature of reality, truth, is there a God? Uh, if there is, can we know whether there's a God? Is there a fundamental disconnect between faith and science? Uh, who decided? When? I mean, these are the questions. You don't get to be on the planet for that many decades, and I think that this is the kind of stuff you might want to think about if you've got some spare time. So we created this thing called Socrates in the City, so that people could examine their lives and think about it. And my feeling is always that if you, fo- if you have the courage, and it does take courage in this culture, if you have the courage to follow the truth, um, you will lead the life you're supposed to lead. But it will take courage. Because as you'll hear uh, tonight, there are times when you speak the truth and there are people whose response is, excuse me, shut up. Uh, I don't like what you're saying. It makes me uncomfortable. Do you have any arguments? Uh, I don't have time for arguments. I need you to shut up. That is, you know, if somebody tells you to shut up or that the history has moved on, it's a sure sign that they're afraid to actually have a conversation. 
And I've always wanted to have those kinds of conversations at Socrates in the city, and we have always failed. But perhaps tonight, because you're just a homespun crowd from, from Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, we will succeed. But we uh, actually, no, we, we've succeeded rather often. I also want to say the Socrates in the city, I thought, uh, I want it to be like a safe space where you can talk about the stuff that people are afraid to talk about other places. And when people refuse to talk about something, it kind of makes me angry because I thought, look, this is my, because my parents came from other countries, I appreciate what it is to be in a country where you can say whatever you want. You can, you can curse out the president of the United States, and you're not going to have, like, a death squad pick you up and, and bring you to jail. We kind of don't realize that in this country we are free. And so when you start, whether it's political correctness or scientific orthodoxy or whatever it is, power structures always want to kind of shut us up. And so when I find that somebody's voice is being shut down, I get offended as an American because even if I disagree with them, I ought to be willing to hear them out. Uh, and my very special guest tonight, Dr. Michael Behe, he's, he's one of those people. He's done some extraordinary things, and even if you disagree, hear him out, because honestly, this is some, some heavy stuff we're going to talk about tonight. Now, I have to tell you, most of you who are here know this, but those watching at home may not know this. This hotel is so extraordinary. It is built, I didn't know this, on what was the home of Count Zinzendorf. When I found that out, I thought, is this a joke? Because in my research for my book on William Wilberforce and in my research for my book on Dietrich Bonhoeffer, both times I bump into the Moravians and Zinzendorf. Zinzendorf is like one of the heroes of heroes. He, like Without him, Bonhoeffer, and some of you will know Bonhoeffer, and if you don't, shame on you. But if you don't know, there's, there's plenty of books, uh, and I'll tell you later. But the point is that his mother was involved in Germany with it was called the Herrenhuter. Uh, it was a Moravian group. Um, uh, uh, we can trace Wilberforce's faith through people to Zinzendorf. Zinzendorf was a hero, and he lived right here. Is it freaking you out? I saw, I saw his ghost in the laundry room. And it, no, I'm sorry, in the weight room, in the, in, the, in, the, in, the fitness, in the fitness center. I saw the ghost of the count. But this is really, as a Christian, I guess I would call this holy ground. This is a really amazing thing that in 1741, that hero was literally here. So when I found that out, I just said, why don't we do an event there in Bethlehem? Because, you know, Dr. Michael B., he lives here and teaches, as some of you know, at Lehigh University. How cool would it be if we could go there and do an event So I I just have to say, I'm so excited um, about this. Before I forget, I want to thank the Discovery Institute for funding most of this uh, tonight and making it possible for you freeloaders, and you know who you are. (laughs) No, not all of you, but some of you, you know who you are. Uh, Free wine, come on. Where do you get free wine? Um, So uh, the Discovery Institute really uh, has made this possible, and so I'm thrilled because obviously I wanted as many people who could come to come. Um, I've told you what Socrates in the City is about. Uh, I have not yet told you about Dr. Michael Behe. Now, this rarely happens, and this is kind of a cheat. If, if somebody does this, it's kind of like they're cheating because they were lazy. So I'm going I'm to read the flap copy from his book. 
Earlier today, while I was preparing my remarks, I glanced at the flap copy to get some ideas, and it struck me that, unfortunately, I could never, ever do better than the flap copy. <laughs> now, as an author who has read the flap copy on my books, I can tell you it often doesn't do justice to what's inside the book. <laughs> and I hate those people who wrote the flap copy on my book, and I'm going to track them down some, at some point when I have more time. Because uh, people read the flap copy, they go, nah, it's not good, and they put the book down, they don't buy it. Um, so whoever wrote the flap copy, uh, I'm going to read it now. And uh, if you wrote this uh, flap copy, would you stand? I'm just curious, anybody? No? Somebody should take credit, because no, I'd, I'd have no idea. Um, l- let me just read this. It'll, give you, it'll frame things this evening better than I could. It's, while Stephen Colbert has called Michael Behe the father of intelligent design. Now, most of you know Stephen Colbert is a renowned man of science. And he... There's no... All right. There's no need to mock, all right? He's not the greatest scientist, but he, he's, he's, he's the best they could get for the flap copy. Um, Stephen Colbert has called Michael Behe the father of intelligent design. Now, if you don't know what intelligent design is, we're going to talk about that tonight. Behe's arguments have been called close to heretical by the New York Times Book Review. You want to talk about a badge of honor. And Richard Dawkins has publicly taken him to task for his maverick views. Because we don't like mavericks in America, right? We like people who toe the line. Wherever he goes, Behe makes ways, but he has remained singularly focused on doing rigorous scientific analysis that points to controversial but incredible results that other scientists won't touch. This research led Behe to challenge Darwin's theory of evolution. What? That's crazy. I had no idea. This is like, I'm not prepared. Are you crazy? What are you doing? Um, Wow. It's just straight up crazy. Okay. Um, his research, just imagine, you want to talk about courage, led him to challenge Darwin's theory of evolution in his seminal bestseller, Darwin's Black Box, uh, which came out in 1996, arguing that science itself has proven that an intelligent design is a better explanation for the origin of life, obviously better than Darwin's uh, thesis, Right? of natural selection. Now, 20 years later, uh, Behe shows that new scientific discoveries made possible only in the past few decades, and this is where I get excited because I had Dr. Behe on my radio show the other day. This is all new science, new information. Point to a stunning fact. Darwin's mechanism works by a process of devolution, not evolution. We'll discuss that. The mechanism works by breaking down genes which means that evolution can help make something look and act different, at least on the surface, but it doesn't have the ability to build or create anything at the genetic level. We'll get into that. Critically analyzing the latest research, Behe gives a sweeping tour of how modern theories of evolution fall short and how the devolving nature of Darwin's mechanism limits them even further. If we're to get a satisfactory answer to how the most complex, stunning life forms arose, and by the way, we are those life forms. Yeah, congratulate yourself. Um, we need to look beyond Darwin. It's time to acknowledge the conclusion that only an intelligent mind could have designed life. Well, some of you already know uh, Dr. Michael B. He's a biochemist uh, and the author of a number of books, but he is a professor of biochemistry 
at Lehigh, and I cannot believe I have him as my guest tonight. Please welcome Dr. Michael Behe. Wow. You know, when you, when you get that kind of applause up front, you should just slink out because it can only go downhill. You're never going to top that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but we have to go on. The cameras are here. I am so excited uh, that you were willing to do this because, as you know, I'm going to give you a hard journalistic grilling. Uh, you're going to look like Nixon in 1960 versus JFK. It's going to get ugly, but, uh, the, you know, we're interested in the truth here. Um, you uh, and I spoke on my radio program the other day, and... There's so much I want to talk about, but I know there are a lot of people here who literally don't even know, like, let's say, what intelligent design is. So would you do us a favor and give us a brief synopsis of what exactly is what we call intelligent design? Well, intelligent design is simply the idea that rather than just the forces of nature, some... uh, intelligent being planned or arranged something. And we, we can tell that's the case oftentimes when we see parts that seem not to have anything to do with each other put together to make something that can do something beyond those parts itself. Okay, now when you say an intelligent being or whatever, you don't say that it's the God of the Bible. You just say it looks like there's design, but you're not getting into who it was. That's, that's right. I, I think uh, from DNA, from the molecular machinery of the cell, you can tell that it was designed, but there's no signature in the cell, even though Stephen Meyer uh, said there was. Right. Uh, and uh, so I, the, uh, the argument is limited to design itself. Okay, so, uh, so intelligent design is different from what some people call creationism. Because I think that part of the reason people don't like talking about this is I've always noticed that there's a false dichotomy between, you know, there are some people who say, uh, you know, the Earth is 8,000 years old, and uh, if you don't believe that, you've got to throw the Bible away, and, and, and that's that. And we're not going to get into, you know... You're not saying that. You're saying... I mean, if somebody said to you, how old do you think the Earth is, what would you say? Well, I, I think it's billions of years old. I'm happy to take physicists' word on it. Uh, so by billions, like four billion? Yes. Uh-huh. Would you go to three? <laughs> four. All right. How old would you say the, the universe is? Oh, uh, what, or whatever the current estimate is, 13 and a half, I think, right I now. think it's 13.8, but close enough. Yeah. <laughs> close enough. Um, uh, all right, so your view is that we've been here for a long time, that the, that the universe has been here, the earth has been here, and you believe that there was life on this planet, whatever, starting like almost a billion years ago? Uh, probably, probably soon after the earth formed is the, is the best estimate these days. And when, so literally like... Uh, Four billion years. Four billion ago. years, yeah. like trilobites or something like that? Well, no, single-celled type organisms. You can only see the kind of chemical traces of earlier okay. life. Okay. Single cells. But so you're saying that life's been here for a very, 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 very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, 
your colleague and, uh, and someone I've interviewed at Socrates in the City twice, Stephen Meyer, talks about sort of what you talk about in your first book, The Cell. And what fascinates me is, t- tell us about, I mean, D- Darwin lived at a time when no one knew what was inside a cell. So they just talked very cavalierly about mm-hmm. evolution and stuff. T- tell us what happened in science in the last hundred years that leads you to write your first book, Darwin's Black Box, and that leads Stephen Meyer to write Signature in the Cell. What do we know that we didn't know when Darwin was hanging out? Uh, well, when Darwin first started, the, the cell was thought to be a piece of jelly, uh, protoplasm. Simple, some buddies of Darwin's... Uh, um, um, would uh, got some uh, mud from an exploring ship and looked at it under a microscope and thought they saw cells there and so therefore thought cells would bubble up spontaneously from the ocean depths. So that's just to give you an example of how primitive science was compared to today. Um, but in the 100 years or so, we've discovered that there are molecules in the cell. People back then didn't even know molecules were real. How embarrassing. <laughs> we all know that. Yeah. It's yeah, ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And as, as more and more of the cell was studied, DNA was discovered. It turned out that DNA carried information that it so was... So now we're talking about Crick and Watson? Yes. Okay, so fairly recently... Uh-huh. Um, Okay, That's but right. but we didn't. I mean, yeah, it's hard to believe. Like we literally didn't know about DNA until uh-huh. very recently. I mean, there are many people in this room who were around yeah. before we discovered DNA. So it's like ten minutes ago, and obviously Darwin didn't have the beginning of a clue of any of these things. That's right. Yeah, he he figured the the basis of life was simple, uh, jelly, protoplasm, and well, maybe that could shape itself or stretch itself into into pretty much anything. Isn't it weird, like, if you read science fiction from maybe the 20s or something like that, they talk about protoplasm, and they they talk about that stuff, like it was a thing. And now we know, like, there was no such thing, but it kind of was in vogue. Um, Okay, so we have to ask the question. Um, Darwin was a well-meaning scientist. Uh, He and Alfred uh, Russell Wallace come up with this concept of natural selection or whatever, and in many ways, of course, it is very plausible. And in that day, it was eminently plausible because they didn't know that the universe was 13.8 billion years old. They thought it was infinitely old and there was an infinite amount of time. So now that we know what we know, what is it that you think makes it so difficult for other scientists to at least say, Houston, we have a problem, evolution has problems? Well, uh, as you know, science and religion have a history. And back in the day before Darwin, every educated person thought life was designed. And it was obvious because, you know, birds have wings and fish have gills and so on, all these things that fit them to their environment. And uh, Darwin uh, Darwin proposed this non-intelligent explanation for life, and biology, which was then kind of struggling to become a professional 
science in its own right, right, loved it because now we don't have to ask, you know, the pastors and the ministers for permission to say something about life. We'll just figure it all out on our own. So there's a kind of a professional jealousy. People want uh, biology to be able to be explained in the same way that physics and chemistry can be explained. Uh, so it's, it's a, uh, there's a history. <laughs> um, but, but I guess, I mean, even in my own stumbling research on a very popular level, I'm amazed at how there's more and more and more information that keeps coming out. I mean, your book, when I talked to you on my radio program this week, you know, the idea that you're writing about stuff that we've known for like 20 years or less, and that that's what enabled you to write this book. Let, let's get to the thesis of the book. When you say Darwin devolves, and the subtitle is The New Science About DNA That Challenges Evolution, the new science about DNA. So what is new that even in 1995 we could not have known that you now know and put in the book? Well, it turns out mutations, which are the fodder for evolution, are changes in molecules in DNA. Yeah. When you switch something in DNA, it, um, uh, it makes it... It changes the instructions, make it code for something else. And we did not have the technology back then to see what the changes were. Uh, most of the time, people would see that there was a change in an organism and it did better. And they said, look, this mutant is doing better than it did before. Okay. Isn't Darwin's theory grand? Okay, now before you give us the rest of that story, mm -hmm. so just to be clear, I want to make sure everybody's tracking, right? So... The, and there's some people here who know tons about this, but maybe some don't. But So the idea is that Darwin and uh, his, uh, um, the, the people, his champions throughout the decades said that, look, uh, it makes sense that mutations happen. Okay. Now, I wonder if th that, that's a great bumper sticker, right? <laughs> like, I would think that biochemists would, would, would you, you can use that. I'll just give All that right. to you. you. So mutations happen and and we know that's inappropriate laughing please and we know that we just know that that mutations happen so so they said okay if mutations happen given an infinite amount of time which in those days they thought we had because they didn't know about the big bang and so on and so forth they said it only makes sense that a good mutation will help that creature to thrive and, and another good mutation will help it thrive more. So the good mutations eventually will lead to better creatures, and that's the process of evolution over the eons. They, they believed that, that, that given enough time, mutations would create effectively us. That, that, that's correct. And uh, you have to remember they didn't know what a mutation was, and, and Darwin didn't talk about mutations, but rather about variation. Uh, and so, when did mutations come into it? Uh, in around the turn of the t uh, 20th century or okay. so, uh, people started to uh, look at that. Uh, after Gregor Mendel and his pea garden in, in Austria talked about, uh, started genetics. Uh, but they would say things like, well, if you were a, uh, a deer and the weather turned colder and a baby deer was born with longer fur, why, well, that would be better. And maybe if it got colder still and the children of that, the offspring of that got even longer, that would be even better. So they were thinking in terms of improving 
uh, improving body features. Um, I mean, I, I never use the phrase, but it, it's what we call survival of the fittest. Yes. Okay, so the, the ones that happened to be best adapted uh-huh. survived and thrived and uh, mated and had more of the same, and this process goes on and on. Okay. Exactly. But uh, people never said, well, well, that's great, but you know, how does that explain complex features when you have to put a few things together? And um, Darwin kind of treaded lightly around that and waved it off and says, we'll, we'll figure that out later when we understand more about biology. But that turns out to be the key critical question. How does complex changes, uh, how do they come about? Okay, so um, we're not going to have time tonight, but when you say complex changes, in other words, when, when you're talking about the length of hair or on the cover of your book, you have Darwin's famous finches, right? So if you got a finch, some finches have bigger beaks, some have more narrow beaks, whatever. Not exactly complicated, right? It's like the hair of the deer. It's like simple. But you're talking about how does a whale come into being? Uh, and the suggestion, of course, is what? That some mammals eventually are wandering in the water and that, you know, suddenly... Shazam, it's a whale. I mean, uh, David Berlinski brilliantly mocks this stuff in his writings because it's, it is very funny when you start talking about, okay, so what's necessary for a land mammal to become a whale who's also a mammal? What's necessary? And the number of things, like it's so complex that it becomes a kind of madness. So if you say that to a strict Darwinianist, Darwinist, what do, what do they say? Uh, they say you're a creationist. <laughs> <laughs> so na- name calling is the order of the day. Uh, right. Name calling and you know condescension, uh, and at best, what you'll get is a what's known in the trade as a just so story, where people give kind of a semi semi plausible account of one perhaps one feature of. A, an organism developing. And it sounds, you know, shaky, but then they say, well, clearly that's, you know, that could have happened. That could have happened. So therefore, there's no reason you can't think that that happened and this happened and, and we don't get to the point where they all become integrated into one system. Okay, but before we get to the specifics of, of your theory in the book, I, I still want to ask, like, we have now had so much time pass between 1859 and the, the publication of The Origin of Species and today, and we've had so many new things that, you know, to look at, right? But one of the biggest ones we've mentioned is time, the idea that at some point in the 20th century there came the thesis of the Big Bang, uh, Boyle, or is it Hoyle, names of the Big Bang, and then... Slowly, you get more and more proof for the Big Bang, and then you get the consensus of scientists saying, yes, we believe the universe is finite. There's a finite number of years uh, that we have to work with for what we call evolution, right? So when, when, when we put forward the idea, as you have and other proponents of intelligent design, that we don't have enough time and we don't even have close to enough time. Has anybody responded? Have, have any scientists responded uh, in anything uh, that is not merely ad hominem? Uh, well, yes. Uh, actually, some people have published papers in 
official science journals addressing such questions. And uh, these days, if you address a question that is uh, relevant to intelligent design and evolution, it kind of bumps your paper up a couple of notches if you are going to uh, take, try to take down evolution. Kind of like more retweets. Just I want yeah. to <laughs> break it down for the young people. That's right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and they're like, we, we stopped Twitter 10 years ago. We're into, we're... They're, okay, they're... But, but, so, <laughs> but so it's still like a hot topic. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I absolutely. mean, and so, okay, uh -huh. all right. And uh, to answer the previous question, there was a paper in a leading journal, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, titled, Is There Enough Time for Evolution? Specifically saying these intelligent design folks say that there's not enough time, and going through a calculation to show that there was. But of course, calculations and models you know, depend on your assumptions, and the fellow writing this assumed that, well, once you got an improvement, you could get another one, another one, essentially just assumed Darwin's theory was true and said, voila, there, there's no problem. He didn't discuss any of the, of the stumbling blocks that ID folks have uh, pointed out. Uh, it was, it was um, a cartoon model. I, I remember literally like 30 years ago reading a cover article in the Atlantic Monthly that dealt with the issue of how did life come into being in the first place. So forget about life evolving, right? But, but just how do you get like the first cell, the first anything? And the article, I mean, you know, we talk about courage and willingness to face the facts. I mean, the article in the Atlantic effectively said, in all the time that we've been looking at this, we are no closer to an answer. We have no idea, which is very different from, you know, the Miller experiment where they kind of, well, it happened like this, right? And then we'll give you the details. And then the decades pass, no details. So, like, that's one level of, that's not explained. But you're now talking about a completely new level. So I want to I get to that idea. So at some point somebody says, okay, Evolution goes by, we don't call it variations, now it's mutations, and now we can look at mutations. So what is it in the last 20 years that makes it clear that that can't work? Well, it, it's our ability to track down helpful changes, helpful mutations in the DNA. Uh, as I said earlier, we couldn't do that before uh, people would see some bacteria grow better in a certain environment or a bunny rabbit have a different coat color and blend into the snow better. Uh, you, you can just say rabbit. <laughs> it's just a, it's a, very, it's a scientific audience. It's a, they can, they can right. take it. There, there are ladies present. Uh, and, uh, but they couldn't track down what was going on. Now we can. Why? Uh, because of technology. Uh, the, everybody, I think, has heard of the Human Genome Sequencing Project, where the DNA complement of humans has been deciphered letter by letter by letter by letter, three billion or so. Uh, but that was really tough sledding. It took a decade or so, billions and billions of dollars. But it's kind of like computers back in the 50s. They were, took up rooms and they were clunky and expensive. Now you've got computers in your hands which can access the world. Same thing with DNA sequencing technology. It has become faster and uh, cheaper and, and uh, easier. And it, now people can sequence genomes of brand new organisms 
you know, in an afternoon, have their graduate student go into the lab and say, sequence that for me. And so now we can track down these mutations. Okay, so the, so the big news that enables you to write this devastating book is that it's no longer speculation. We now can look at the actual mutations and determine whether they are helping the organism and how. And based on your research... Well, it, it turns out that they do help them. There's lots of mutations that help. But the bottom line is that, overwhelmingly, the mutations are ones that break things that were already there. They take genes that are working in some organisms and figuratively snap them and throw them away, and that helps in some circumstances. And people might wonder, you know, how, how can breaking something help? Well, if you, uh, if you think of your car, suppose your life depended on you getting better gas mileage for your car. You know, what's a quick and easy way to get better gas mileage? Well, of course, you can throw things away. You can take off weight. You can take the doors and throw them away, take the hood and throw it away. Of course, those are useful in some circumstances. But if right now your life depended on your car getting better gas mileage, uh, the way to go is to, is to throw those out. The cell does that too. Okay, so if... Um, I, I just imagine a lot of people are thinking, well, so what? In other words, if mutation br- is... The, the genetic code is broken here and that helps... Why is that a problem for Darwinism? Well, because it shows that Darwin's mechanism is actually powerfully devolutionary rather than evolutionary. It uh, strongly uh, strongly tends to break things, throw them away, like the example I talked about, and that's not going to be something that constructs sophisticated molecular machinery such as we found in the cell. Okay, so what you're saying is... Uh, if I have a wolf and I want to breed dogs uh, of various kinds, which basically has happened, right? Uh, You're saying that it's not a process of evolution, it's a process of devolution, meaning that you take the standard dog model of DNA Mm -hmm. and you break stuff off of it. So tell us about that. Yeah, uh, believe it or not, the complete... DNA genome has been sequenced not only of wolves and not only of, of a particular dog, but dozens of breeds of dogs, purebred dogs with different features so that people can track down what's, what's going on, what, what is causing them to have smaller stature or fuzzier fur or uh, other features. And it turns out that to a very large extent, it's due to breaking genes that were already there. Uh, there's genes involved in fur that, if you break them, makes it curlier. And genes involved in bone growth, if you break them, it'll be shorter. And there's developmental genes that help a snout develop. And if you break that, you get a truncated snout like in a bulldog. So we did show how... Darwin's theory works uh, by artificial selection, uh, but it's it's working by breaking genes. It, it's I, I just feel, I feel like what you're saying though is that, in other words, 
what this is leading us to conclude is there are these models that exist. There's a dog. There's a cat. There are these different things. And you're saying that we can have microevolution and we can break the, the genes and so we can make this kind of a cat or this kind of a dog. But we can never, because we're not adding genes or, or whatever, you, you can never breed a dog that will become a giraffe or a horse. You can never break out of the dog wheel rut, so to speak. Like it's always going to be some kind of dog. That, that's correct. And more than that, you can think that, well, as this dog is selected for various things, say a French poodle or, or so right. on, those genes are thrown away and they're gone. They're not coming back. So the ability of the dog, the, the dog that has already been selected right. to adapt to a different environment becomes more and more restricted so that, the, that it becomes evolutionarily brittle, so it gets okay. stuck in its environment. Okay, so that, but, well, that, that, that is, I just want to make sure we have uh, time. Basically, we've got plenty of time, thank the Lord. Okay, so <laughs> what you just said, though, because I, I want this to be clear for, for the layman, and because scientists like us, you know, we understand yeah. this stuff, yeah, yeah. but um, <laughs> they, they don't know that I'm yeah. a scientist, but <laughs> I, I know. Uh, so here's the, here's the issue. You're saying, I think that Darwinists have been saying, for example, that there are no limits, that there are no boundaries, that a species is fluid, and that if I were to breed dogs long enough, I could get them as tiny as a housefly. But in reality, you're saying no... The limits of dogness, and I just coined that word, <laughs> are fixed. And the same thing with how big dogs can get. Because I think to those of us who don't know science, you'd sort of think like, look, why couldn't I breed a dog as big as this room? Why? Mm-hmm. But you're saying I can't. Well, Clifford, Clifford accepted. Yes, uh, but, right. <laughs> and, and he's red, which yeah. is a whole other... Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> That, that's correct. Uh, actually, I, I write in the book about a number of what I call luxuriantly evolving species, particularly on islands, such as the Galapagos, Darwin's fish, finches. And it turns out there's a, a, a number of them. The finches have been on the Galapagos for millions of years, and they've, uh, they've uh, formed about a dozen or 16 species. It's kind of uncertain. Um, and a couple of the next level up is genera or genus, but no new families, and that's the next level up. And there are other rapidly evolving fish called cichlids in African lakes, and they have been there just 15,000 years, and it's known that because of the lake, Lake Victoria, evaporated 15,000 or so years ago, and these species are found nowhere else in the world, and there's about a 1,000 of them, new species, and a number of new genera. No new families, though. And the level of biological family is like the cat family versus the dog family, okay? Lions and tigers and uh, wolves and foxes and, and so on. And I make the case in the book that that is the limit of Darwinian, unguided evolution. You can have new species and new 
genera, but you can't make a new family by unguided evolution. Okay, so uh, as I've talked to Stephen Meyer about this, he, he seems to suggest that in Europe, not so much here, there are people at the cutting edge uh, of this world in science who are open to, to talking about this, and that at the very highest level conferences, there isn't quite the fear that you find, let's say, in the faculty lounge at Lafayette or Lehigh to pick something out of the, you know, the book. Lafayette. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's correct. Uh, we're we're going to cut that out in yeah, post. Okay. I apologize. <laughs> I apologize. I apologize sometimes. <laughs> Yeah, it's surprising but true that I would estimate that at least a third of professional biologists, academic biologists, think that Darwin's theory is inadequate. That it okay, doesn't. That, stop. That's amazing. Yeah. Say that again. About a third of non-intelligent design academic biologists yeah. are fed up with Darwin's theory. Okay, they, that's huge to me, like yeah, to hear that. Yeah. Okay. And uh, yet... It's only talked about in professional journals and meetings. When the uh, public media gets hold of it, it's, it's all Darwin all the time. And it is presented as a united front, that science says that Darwin's theory is known to explain everything. But, but professional biologists know there's, there's, uh, there's problems right. with it. Well, even uh, I, I remember Stephen Jay Gould at Harvard beginning to be honest uh, mm -hmm. about this kind of stuff, but obviously before he died some years ago. But, but um, he was sort of a popular scientist and who wrote popular essays. But he, he, was, he was honest about that, wasn't he, that we have problems sort of in-house? Yeah. Uh -huh. And he got into trouble for it, too. Even, <laughs> even he got into even trouble. Even he, yeah, right. Well, imagine the trouble you're going to get into. Yeah. <laughs> Holy cow. Uh, um, so... That's interesting to me. I didn't, I didn't realize that. A, a few years ago, uh, there was a, a kind of a, uh, two dueling letters to the journal Nature. Nature is the most prominent science journal in the world. And the letters were by two groups of sun, scientists, one saying that Darwin's theory is great, and the other one saying that we need to move beyond it. There are things that it doesn't account for. So, you know, this is in the premier science journal in the world, people saying that Darwin cannot cover everything. And what's interesting in the uh, skeptical letter, the one that said that Darwin's theory doesn't really uh, cover everything, that they said, uh, we know that you know, fear of intelligent design makes a lot of people want to circle the wagons and, and uh, pretend that every, Darwin's theory covers everything. And they, and they, they uh, uh, talked about that explicitly. Uh, so a lot of this is due to fear, fear of letting the great unwashed know uh, the state of, of, the, the, of the biology. And, and what, is, what is the big fear? I mean, is it fear that science is pointing, is pointing uh, to something like the God of the Bible and that that's just repulsive to some people? I mean, is that it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, 
what else is there to say? My, um, <laughs> my friend, John, the brilliant John Zmirak, was at a Socrates in the City event that I did with uh, your friend Stephen Meyer uh, a couple months ago and was so inspired by the whole intelligent design discussion that we had that he wrote an article. It just came out at stream.org, and I talked to him on my radio program about it uh, earlier today. He, he came up with a compromise. He said, I've got a great compromise for the atheists and the intelligent design people that we can all agree on that's going to help everybody. And he said, the problem seems to be that the, the, the atheists don't like the concept of that it was a god that did the design. But they kind of know that it looks like there was design, but they can't admit it because it points to God. So his compromise is, why don't we just like all agree to say that, look, we know there's probably a designer, but let's say that that designer is just an alien on Alpha Centauri <laughs> who doesn't care whom we sleep with, <laughs> who doesn't care about what we do or human morality. And so since that designer doesn't care, we can be honest about the science. That's a great idea. Isn't yeah. it? <laughs> um, but it's, but it's interesting. He wrote it as a parody, but uh, I don't know, probably some folks in the audience know, but back in the day, back in the 19, I think, 70s somewhere, Francis Crick of Watson and Crick fame, co-discoverers of the shape of DNA, co-wrote an article uh, with a guy named Leslie Orgel entitled Directed Panspermia. Directed panspermia. This is a family show. Yeah. So you don't... All right, I'll leave out the yeah. pan part then. Yeah. yeah. Right. Uh, pan. Uh, any any references to pan or Bacchus or Dionysus yeah. could lead people astray. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a lot of people uh, they're, they're, they already had four glasses of the, of the free yeah. grape juice out there, uh, so we don't need we don't need to go there. Okay. So uh, what 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 does that mean? And this is Francis. Crick, the famous Francis yeah. Crick. Okay, uh, and essentially, it it was that the problems with uh, figuring out an origin of life on Earth were so great, people had no clue that maybe we should look into the idea that space aliens from a different planet shot rockets all over the universe, carrying spores to seed other planets, and that's how life started. Of course, that just you know, leads to you know pushes the problem to the next planet over. But that's what's so that's what's so funny. Yeah, <laughs> right. But it's kind of like he did it, and it's like <laughs> okay, and then let's let's question him. It's like no, 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 you can't talk to him. But Francis, um, Francis Crick said that well, maybe there was some special substance on another planet that we don't have here. You know, maybe kryptonite or, or something like that that uh, would get life started. So the point okay, is that th that's this is getting funny now. <laughs> So you have these eminent scientists, mm -hmm. effectively, because they, they dare not you know, use the word, but the, it's, it's kind of like they're saying there, there could be some magic on that planet that creates life, exactly. and that's our explanation. Mm -hmm. Like, that's the scientific explanation. It's probably magic from another planet, mm -hmm. which is madness. I mean, it's like the parallel, it's like the multiverse theory. Exactly, and, and actually, now that you brought that up... Uh, <laughs> 30, 40 years on from, uh, from Crick's 
uh, presentation, another fellow named Eugene Koonin, who is a very prominent scientist, not, not of the stature of Crick, but very prominent, he says that the problems with imagining an origin of life on Earth are so great that maybe we are the lucky universe in you know, 10 to the 1,000th power universes, and that would get life started, he said. Uh, yeah. So, you know, essentially... Man, that's lucky. A wave, a wave, yeah. Of, <laughs> yeah. wave of the hands. <laughs> but it, it, it becomes funny. Again, I, I approach this stuff from a popular level, but it's always a staggering thing to see people that you're supposed to respect, like scientists, resorting to that kind of chicanery and, and foolishness. I mean, mm-hmm. it's embarrassing, but they would rather in effect, posit an infinity of universes than deal with the most obvious Occam's razor answer is, oh, there's design. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that's, it's, it's horrifying to me that we're at that state in the world of quote-unquote science. Yes, you have to realize that there's only, you can postulate, you know, uh, tens of thousands of universes or, or space aliens sending rockets around, uh, but there is one strict rule about what you can't posit. <laughs> Guess what that might be? It's that there is an intelligent being that has the power to build and plan and make life. E- even though, again, ironically, that seems to be, even if you don't believe it, you have to concede that that's probably the most logical, right? In other words, it, it might be the most logical, and you could say, well, I still... Uh, I don't want to believe it, or it's distasteful. I hope there's another reason. But right. it's not even like it's close anymore. Like it's getting, you know, yeah. uh, Stephen Meyer is writing a book now called The God Hypo- the Return of the God Hypothesis. Like the evidence has become so outrageous yeah. that it's kind of embarrassing. I feel sorry for, for scientific materialists and, and for, you know, scientistic yeah. scientists because it's, it's looking bad. Well, uh, yeah, and the only thing I really hold against such folks who posit these uh, outrageous things is that they don't admit in public that they don't know what's going on. They say they will join forces with, uh, with uh, the greater groups of scientists to say, we've got it under control, don't you worry your little heads about it, you know, we don't need to tell you this, right. we, even though you know practically everybody in the history of the world has believed in a designer, believed that life needed yeah. to be uh, to be made, to be created. Uh, they won't let kids know. They'll lie to children and tell them that we got it all under control, or they'll kind of say mealy mouth words so that they're not actually saying that they have the answer, but they say, oh, but, but we will, and right. science is a, a search for the truth. And this, well, that, it's, no. it's a weird thing because, I mean, I know that people on both sides of this do that, right? We all know people of faith, right, who find some problem in, the, in their hypothesis, or they find some problem in the Bible or some problem in archaeology or something like that, and it troubles them, and they honestly feel like, well, I can't talk about that, or I have to build some Rube Goldberg device around this problem rather than say, look, I just believe, I only want to believe in what is true, and if there's a God, he's the God of truth, so I don't have to worry mm-hmm. about the evidence or something like that, you know, and they, they kind of, they, they, they circle the wagons, you know, but we've heard a lot about that, but we never hear about 
scientists who you're you know saying that this is effectively what they're doing. Yeah, uh, everybody has a worldview, uh, and they will oftentimes go to great lengths to protect that. And as you say, religious people certainly do. Uh, and but that has been looked at pretty thoroughly in the in the uh, media. The opposite, though, the, uh, the worldviews of scientists that they will not entertain uh, an idea of design of something outside the universe affecting it, uh, that is, you know, that's, that's not interesting to many reporters because they kind of share that view, and it's, it's just the modern way of thinking. Well, I guess what I find funny, I, I wrote a book called Miracles, which in the beginning of it I deal with the fine-tuned universe stuff, you know, and I obviously stole everything there from you know John Lennox and and uh, some of your friends. But uh, but the point is that you know even I could see like what science is. Science is our ability to describe the universe. Mm-hmm. So using evidence, using the scientific method, using our five senses, we can learn and learn and learn and learn. But I realize that there are limits to science. So science can tell me. Uh, you know, about the universe, but science can never tell me why the universe exists or whether there is a reason. Like, that's impossible for science. So some of what you're talking about strikes me as being, you know, ironic that you you have scientists in a way, not in a way, clearly going outside the precincts of science and making postulations based on a kind of faith in something. They don't want to believe there's a god and they, they ought they ought really to be properly agnostic on that. That that's true. But scientists are very poor philosophers as a rule, and they they don't realize oftentimes that that's what they're doing. Uh, they've kind of imbibed their assumptions from other places. Uh, but a lot of people forget. Uh, I think I myself think science can conclude that some things have a purpose, uh, like eyes. Eyes have a purpose. You know, you might think that, say, a, a, you don't know what a purpose of a cow is, but the purpose of a cow's eye is obvious. The purpose okay. of a cow's udder is, is obvious. Uh, utterly. Uh, utterly. Uh, <laughs> I apologize. Yeah. We're going to cut that out also. Um, well, I guess what I'm saying is, and, and, you know, I'm stealing this also from John Lennox, but, but the point is that there are, there are limits to science, and I think what has happened is that if, if a scientist is, is uncomfortable with that, he begins to saying everything that's not science is stupid. You know, it's like somebody who loves baked goods and has a bakery, and this anything that is not a baked good, like, we can't talk about it, it's stupid. Like, rather than just saying, I like baked goods, and that's my field, they kind of act like anything outside of that field can't exist. And so yeah. you have... Scientists declaring off limits any reasonable speculation, which is to say, any philosophy, um, as somehow not just not science but anti-science. Yeah, yeah, and and you can see how from that how unreflective many scientists are, because it's been known for sixty years uh, by philosophers that that philosophy, which they called logical positivism, that only things that could be measured and so on are real, is self-contradictory because 
there is no scientific experiment that can be done to show that, that, <laughs> that nothing outside science can be known. So, you know, there, it's self-refuting. Uh, what's more, scientists don't think that, well, okay, only science, uh, scientific knowledge gives, uh, or scientific experiments give knowledge. Well, how about mathematics? Should we throw out mathematics? Mathematics isn't science. It's, it's obviously anti-science. It's helpful. <laughs> how about logic? Uh-huh. How about developing theories? You know, when you first get a theory, what experiment told you that you should make up that theory? Nothing. But isn't it true that, I mean, everything you're saying, it's common sense. Like, uh-huh. everyone knows this mm-hmm. except people who insist it's just wrong. You know, like they just don't want to go there or they subvert yeah. their own common sense because it seems... It's, it's just so reasonable that it's almost funny. And, yeah, it, it is. And, and it, we're kind of riding on the uh, knowledge that we had over the millennia. Uh, but the basic clash between that view and our lived lives is that that view, at bottom, wants to get rid of minds. It wants to get rid of everybody's mind and say okay. there's no now, such what, thing. What you mean, because I know a lot of people are going to miss this. I just happen to know this because I'm smarter than them. Um, uh, When you say mind, okay, what you're saying, I know what you're saying. I want everybody to understand. You're saying they will say brains exist, Mm -hmm. but minds do not exist. In other words, everything that's conscious, consciousness, is just a brain which is just a computer. You're saying mind is something else. So explain that a little bit. Uh, that's, that's exactly right. That uh, They will say brains exist because evolution built brains for us and that everything at bottom is matter so that when you think and you think you're thinking, you're not really thinking in the traditional sense of thinking because... Uh, you know, it's, it's uh, natural laws that are determining what your thought processes are. And ironically, the people who think that are actually not thinking. <laughs> that, and it, there's ironies everywhere you look yeah. in, in, this, in this topic. But a man named Francis Crick <laughs> wrote a book uh, 20 years or so ago called The uh, the Amazing Hypothesis, I believe the title was, and it was st- The Astounding Hypothesis, and essentially that it says, you are nothing but a pack of neurons. That- How dare you? <laughs> My wife is in the audience. Take that back. Um, but I mean, so that's, that's the point of view that's really, you know, um, it's a dramatic thing. It's, it says that there is literally no such thing as good or evil. Yeah. That mm-hmm. what is is, there is no meaning. There's no good, there's no evil, there's no transcendence. The love uh, that, that I have for my parents or my wife or my daughter, that's just evolution making me feel something to perpetuate the species. Mm-hmm. But there's nothing transcendent. Love doesn't exist. Mind doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. None of that is real. And they're insisting on this. That's, that's, that's correct, and that's where scientific materialism leads. Not only lo- does not, uh, love doesn't exist, you don't exist, and I don't exist. Nobody exists here. 
There are philosophers um, supported, cheered on by scientists who say that uh, there is no consciousness. Consciousness is an illusion. You say, wait a second. <laughs> an illusion in what? It's a pretty good illusion. Yeah. <laughs> Don't I have to have a, a consciousness to have an illusion of consciousness? Uh, uh, and, and so it, it turns out that all of this stuff is, is related. Yeah. The ability to see purpose and design in life uh, was thrown out by Darwin's theory. And it ultimately leads to denying humanity, denying uh, anything exists beyond the physical level. Okay, but what I find interesting is those scientists never really come out and say that because that would be so unpopular, you know, the mobs would come for them. Oh, they do say that. Well, <laughs> but, but they don't say it publicly. They're not going to say it to a Time Magazine reporter, to New York Times. They're, they're, they understand yeah. that it's, first of all, very ridiculous, but uh -huh. it's also, even if people buy it, it just feels wrong, like it feels mistaken, mm -hmm. and they, they don't seem to be pushing that idea. That's right. I, I think they're kind of screened by the media who will see how it will be perceived as, you know, really ridiculous. We just have a few minutes left, and I, I have to ask you, how many years have you been teaching at Lehigh? Ooh, got here in 85, so... 85? Uh-huh. So. I'll bet you didn't have a gray beard in them days. No. Wow. Are you kidding? 34 uh, years now? 30. Time flies, yeah. Um, what, what year did you get tenure? Uh, that's a great question. It was actually 88 because I came here after being faculty at Queens College in New York City. Uh -huh. So I had already had three years under my belt. Okay. So, so, so my, my question is, when did you come to believe in the things you believe now? Was it after you got tenure? <laughs> hey, my mama didn't raise no idiot, you know. <laughs> so, uh, I'm trying to read between the lines. So, are, are you uh, are, are you implying that you had some intimations of these things before you got tenure? Actually, I used to believe in Darwin's theory, and it was only around the time I got tenure, maybe a year before, that I read a book called Evolution and Theory and Crisis by a man named Michael Denton that may kind of shocked me. Uh, be, by pointing out dar problems for Darwin's theory that I had never thought of. And right. I, I, so I was led to think, I, I thought that I was led to believe this rather than, uh, than uh, it being based on the best evidence. So it was around the time, right around the time that I started to think about this, but it was only uh, five years or so later that I got publicly involved in the ID movement. Right. Well, and, and right now, I mean, obviously, since you have tenure, you're, uh, they're stuck with you. And I, uh, <laughs> I feel bad for them yeah. because you're just you're clearly not a scientist. But look, uh, the, uh, the, the idea that the climate in the world of the academy is today such that people who discover things... Uh, are afraid even about being honest. In other words, you're, you're, not, you're not talking about pushing anything. You're just talking about 
saying, I I've discovered these things, what do we make of them? Let us reason together. That's mm -hmm. supposed to be the idea of, of education and of the academy. Yes, it is supposed to be that. Uh, unfortunately, there are things you can reason about and things that are assumed to be true and beyond discussion. And unfortunately, evolution, in Darwin's theory in particular, is one of those things. And uh, you entertain this idea if you don't have tenure at great risk to your career right. if you're a scientist. I've known people who have lost jobs, graduate students who have been kicked out of laboratories, uh, all sorts of bad stuff. Uh, so it's, it's a very serious topic. Well, I mean, I guess when I hear this, you know, again, I say it, it makes me angry that that kind of stuff goes on in America because I expect it to happen, you know, in the former Soviet Union. I expect it to happen under national socialism. I expect it to happen in Kim Jong-un's Korea, until perhaps today, when he saw the light, um, we, who, know, who knows what's happening? Uh, but uh, I guess when that kind of stuff happens in America, it, it, it's shocking to me. And I just say this publicly: it, it's we, we all have to stand against this, not because you believe in uh, a certain theory, but because we're talking about truth-seeking. And we're talking about freedom. Uh, and it, it, it's an amazing thing to me that you've been able to be so good-natured about this uh, as you've proceeded in doing what is gigantically important work uh, uh, without uh, you know, being honored by the institution that, uh, that employs you, because clearly the climate is such that you can't do that. Um, but I, uh, I, I do think that uh, since... This ballroom uh, is not paid for by any university. We uh, can honor you by not only having you here and, and, and hearing from you, but uh, by thanking you for doing what you're doing. So I want to say thank you for being with us, and thank you for all you've done. I'm just done. Thank you so much. We're going to, uh, now we're going to sign some books. I think you deserve this. You're going to have to deal with it now. They're going to, they're going to stand. They're going to stand. Yeah. Wow. Wow. All right. All right. Wow. Take some names of the people still sitting. I don't know what we're going to do. Uh, wow, wow, wow. So what happens now? What happens now? We sign some books. Uh, this guy, by the way, he has a book out. If you don't buy a copy, um, you know what we're going to do? For, for those of you who can't afford to buy a copy of the book, you don't need to pay for this evening. This is free. Yeah, <laughs> Alyssa, right? Okay, this will be free. If you can't afford a book, uh, the evening, it's our gift. And, uh, and you can have a glass of wine. That'll also be on me. Uh, is there anything we need to do right now? Where's the bookseller? Right there? Okay. We'll be here. Okay, so I can sign books too? But I, but I can't sign his books. Okay, all right. Thank you for coming. Do what you like. Here we are. Uh -huh.
stage that way and come this way, and you can exit that way. And I'm sorry that we didn't tell you this in advance. Oh, God bless you. Thank you, sir. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Bless you. Thank you. Thanks for coming.